with episode number two in the Roma series, R-O-M-A, which is, I don't know what it is, ranting out my ass, responding out my ass, romanticizing out my ass, um, doing things that begin with R out my ass. But mainly, this is an opportunity to respond to reader emails, requests for advice, requests for information, uh, whatever. It's a way to interact with you, my audience. Weird. That's that's weird. It's weird to have an audience, I got to say. I'm not a born performer. So the whole notion of me having an audience, especially this invisible audience out there in the world that occasionally bubbles up into my presence when someone recognizes me on the street or sends me an email or something. Um, yeah, okay. It's a strange thing. So I was thinking about the first episode in which I was talking about love and I gave some, you know, words of wisdom to somebody who was thinking of canceling this big trip because they'd fallen in love and all that. And I was making the point that love is something that is really generated within you and then projected out onto other people. And in that sense, it's both an illusion and it's very real, maybe the most real experience we have in life. And yet, the way we perceive it is very much illusory because we think it's about the other person when in fact it's about ourselves. It's about our sense of who we are, of what we lack, of what we need, of what we hunger for all. It's, it's a very self um, reflective self referential kind of uh, experience. And yet we perceive it as if it's completely about the other. And I was thinking of an example of that that I didn't mention, but should have. A few years ago, um, on the 4th of July, my parents went out to watch the fireworks or have a party. I don't know. They went to someone's house for a party or something. And they left the dog in the backyard. This is in Los Angeles where they live. Um, and my dad's got a golden retriever uh, named Tess. It's the third golden retriever he's had. First, there was Stoli. Always a bad sign when you name your dog after vodka. Uh, Stoli, and then um, and then the other one. <laughs> Shit, I forget the other one's name. That's Brandy. Yeah, Brandy, and then Tess. Okay. Anyway, so they're golden retrievers. You can understand why I get their names mixed up. I go to visit occasionally. There's a golden retriever. I don't know. I, I, I forget. I don't care. I don't really have a personal relationship with them. And they all look pretty much the same to me. So here's the story. My parents went out and left the dog in the backyard. I guess because of all the explosions, the dog got really nervous, freaked out, jumped over the fence, which it had never done before never wanted to you know it's just kind of a lazy fucking dog so jumped over the fence they got home the dog's gone oh my god big panic because they're in a part of los angeles where you wouldn't want your dog running around it's just traffic everywhere for miles in any direction it's just roads and cars and craziness so it's not what you would call a dog friendly zone and they were freaked well my father was freaked my mother doesn't really much care for dogs so she was probably secretly hoping for the worst but um 
my my dad and my sister were freaks. So they ran around calling the dog everywhere. Then they drove all around. They put up signs. They contacted every all the neighbors. They called all the the shelters and you know they did all the things you would do if you were freaked out because your dog was missing and passed a couple of really rough days i think i was in vancouver at the time and they even you know sent me email updates and oh my god the dog and this and that anyway so um and i know how they felt when i was a kid my dog ran away it was like it was like the world was ending i i mean i can remember all sorts of, uh, you know, panic and crying and freaking out. Anyway, so a few days later, they get the call from the shelter. Hey, I think we have your dog. You know, so they come down and there's the dog. Oh, my God, and the dog and everyone's so happy. And the, oh, the kissing and licking and all the things you do with dogs. And then they took the dog home and they're in the backyard. And my sister, and my dad are throwing the tennis ball and the dogs are running around chasing the tennis ball and everybody's happy. It's a fucking domestic bliss situation and my sister's boyfriend comes home and he looks out the back window and he says to my mother whose dog are they playing with and she says well that's Tess and he says no it's not (laughs) and then around this time the phone rings and it's a neighbor who says hey I think we have your dog oh really they go down and there's Tess. Now, the dog that they had was not their dog. And in fact, later when I talked to my sister about it, she said, well, yeah, you know, I mean, I did think about the fact that Tess was wearing a collar and this dog wasn't. And then when we went into the house, this dog walked right into, you know, mom's bedroom area, which Tess knew never to go into because that wasn't, you know, that was uh, forbidden land there. And there were some other things that this dog did that Tess wouldn't have done or didn't do. But they ignored those things. And they truly believed for that hour or two hours or whatever it was that this was their dog. So my point is that what they were feeling, that relief, that happiness, that love, Those were authentic feelings. They were really feeling those things, right? But it really had nothing to do with that dog that was chasing the tennis ball, right? They'd never seen that dog before in their lives. So my point is that I think this illustrates what I was trying to get at in that in the previous episode where I was saying that the feeling, the love is generated within you and then you locate it on the person outside of you and you say, oh, that's the person that gives me love. Just like my father said, oh, I love this dog so much. That's the dog. Without this dog, I can't have this feeling, right? Because the feeling comes from this dog. It didn't come from that dog. It came from a dog that sort of looked similar to that dog and didn't have a collar and didn't even act particularly like that dog. But it didn't really matter to him because the feeling it created was authentic. So I think we all do this in different ways in our lives. We generate feelings and then we attribute it to external triggers. Andrew Weil, in in one of his early books called The Natural Mind, um, which I think was written in the early 70s, even comes up with this theory of 
how he believes that a lot of the experience of getting high with marijuana is generated within the mind itself. And then we attribute it to the marijuana, but it's actually just that the marijuana triggers a state of consciousness that we've learned to associate with dry mouth and the smell and the, you know, the different um, sensations that are associated with the marijuana. And you can see this in people. You can see people who are, you know, for example, it takes time to learn to get high, right? Everybody's got stories about the first five or 10 times they smoked weed, they didn't feel anything or they, they didn't feel anything they could recognize, right? And it took time to learn to feel it. Um, you know, and there, I mean, I know lots of stories about people who, you know, smoke something that they think is marijuana and then they get really high. And then later somebody tells them, yeah, actually that wasn't marijuana. It's the placebo effect. The placebo effect is triggered by this external thing, this pill, this liquid, this substance that you believe has certain effects. And then it does have those effects, but the effects aren't really from the substance. The effects are coming from within you. So I guess what I'm saying is that I think a lot of what we experience in our lives, whether it be love or grief or getting old and all these different things that we experience in certain ways, the experiences are generated from within um, within ourselves, within our belief system. And then we attribute it to something outside ourselves. And by doing that, we rob ourselves of a huge amount of power. Because, for example, I mentioned getting old. I was thinking of research I read years ago in which it was shown that Chinese people don't lose memory and cognitive capacity as they get older, unless they have, you know, an organic disorder, a, you know, organic dementia or Alzheimer's or something. But in general, most Chinese people don't lose that sort of mental uh, faculty. Why? Because in their culture, they don't believe they will. In our culture, we, we're always saying, oh, another senior moment. Oh, I can't remember names anymore. Oh, those beliefs reinforce the thing that we think they're referring to. But in fact, what they're doing is generating the thing that they refer to. There are diseases in, in uh, Southeast Asia and China. I think it's called Koros, K-O-R-O, Koro. It's the disease of believing that someone has magical powers that will shrink your penis. And as ridiculous as that sounds, it's something that's taken very seriously to the point where, you know, um, people who are believed to be witches who are inflicting koro on men will be killed, fucking hacked to death with machetes because these people believe that these witches are casting spells that are shrinking their penises. Well, you look at that from outside a cultural belief system and you say, that's fucking ridiculous, dude. Your penis is shrinking because you're terrified. You're terrified because you believe something that isn't true, right? So it becomes this sort of self-perpetuating cycle of belief 
and in this case, physiological effect that reinforces the belief, which therefore reinforces the physiological effect, and it fucking spirals out of control. So look around and you'll find dozens, if not hundreds of examples of this in your own culture, in your own life. We create reality out of the stories we tell. And one of the only true powers we have is deciding what stories we're going to tell. But that's the biggest power because that's the first thing. The story generates the world. So choose your stories carefully. Okay, let's look at some letters. These are not in any particular order. Uh, they're just letters that have come in recently. And um, Natasha, my underpaid, overworked assistant, forwarded them on to me and thought they might be interesting for this, this series. Um, okay, here's one that came in just recently. <clears throat> I know I'm going to sound crazy, but please push through the crazy. My friend and I are going to save the world. We have figured out a way anyone... In a first world country with a debit card, Netflix, weed, and a PC uh, can change their entire life and way of thinking. This will not only stop Trump, but could save the planet. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, we were meant to be to my friend and I, you know, it's like the sense of destiny and his friend or she and her friend. I don't know. I don't know. Okay, the, the combination of these things, these things which have not been mentioned yet, will change anyone's life. I'm so sure about this that I'm quitting my job, spending all my money to make this happen. Uh, this is the challenge that will change the world. I would love to talk about this further, whether by Skype, email, or face-to-face. -face. Uh, this is my new job. Please contact me here. Okay. Now, I don't mean to make fun of this although it is kind of make funnable. Uh, yeah, good luck changing the world. That's a noble um, goal, of course, ambition. Everybody wants to change the world. Although it's funny, when, you know, when you see these history documentaries and they say, well, he changed the world. Steve Jobs changed the world. Yeah, well, so did fucking Hitler and Genghis Khan, right? So changing the world in and of itself is not necessarily such a great thing. Uh, Although it's always presented as if it's an admirable result of your life, you know, to have changed the world. Well, let's focus on if we're going to change the world, maybe we should change it for the better. And maybe we should have a lot of respect for unintended consequences. Um, you know, people who set out to change the world, I don't know. I don't know. Uh my sense is that the world has been changing a lot and not necessarily for the better. So maybe we should just leave the fucking world alone. Maybe, you know, maybe the, the greatest thing to do is change the world back a little bit, you know, change it back. He changed the world back to the way it was. Yeah, that, that'll be my legacy. Uh okay, so my point about reading this email is I got a I get a lot of these emails and Okay, here's what I feel. I feel two things. I feel one, all right, I'm happy. I'm glad that whoever wrote this feels, um, you know, that I'm relatively accessible and, you know, that I'm a nice enough guy that I'm not just going to delete his message and, and uh, or her message and, and um, you know, that there's a chance that I'll respond. So here I am responding. But the other thing I feel is, 
give me a fucking break, man. Give me a fucking break. First of all, you send me this email. You want me to call you or contact you or whatever. How much time do you think I have? Very little. Okay. Very fucking little time. Why am I going to answer some stranger who writes to me, obviously stoned in the middle of the night and doesn't tell me what the fuck you're even talking about? Right now, this is a, a, a constant refrain in these things like you don't have time to tell me what your idea is, but you think I've got time to contact you and, you know, whatever, talk on Skype or whatever it is while you explain to me what your harebrained fucking scheme is. This is a problem. And I know I'm going to sound like an asshole here, but this is a problem that is recurring with people contacting um, you know, if you're reaching out to someone who's like kind of famous or, you know, has a job for you or something that you want, someone you're trying to ask them for help. The first principle is do not waste their fucking time. Have respect for their time. If they even take the time to read whatever the fuck it is you wrote to them, Somewhere in that, in the first sentence or two, should be an acknowledgement that they're already doing you a favor just by reading whatever it is you sent. And if you've got a paragraph like I have here in front of me, which says fucking nothing, right, then you've wasted my time. I read through this thing and I say, okay, you're going to change the world. You're going to stop Donald Trump and all you need is Netflix and weed. What the fuck, man? What are you even talking about? You don't tell me what you're talking about. So I don't know what you're talking about, but I sure as fuck don't have any time to call you up and find out what you're talking about. So next, uh, here's another example of that. Well-intentioned, but come on. Hey, Chris, I listened to your podcast with Joe Rogan, and I wanted to know how much time it took you to hitchhike to Alaska. I live in Canada, and I want to do something similar. Why the fuck are you writing to me to ask how long it takes to hitchhike to Alaska? First of all, hitchhiking is not like flying an airplane, so how long it takes depends on a lot of things. Secondly, it's very easy to go online and find out how long it takes to drive from wherever the fuck you are to wherever the fuck you want to go. You know, multiply that by 10 and more or less, that's how long it might take to hitchhike, depending how big you are, how ugly you are, how scary you are, and how generous people are, and what the weather's like, and how much shit you're carrying, etc., etc. So I don't fucking know how long it's going to take you to hitchhike from wherever the fuck you are to Alaska. I did it in 1983, okay? Why are you writing to me about this? This information's available out there in the world and whatever information I could possibly offer you is so outdated and, and unrelated to what you're trying to do that it doesn't matter. So I don't get it. Why do people send people emails like that? All right. Next one. Oh, here's a good one. All right. So enough of the negativity. Here's, here's a, a very interesting one. It's kind of long, so I'll sort of read it and comment as we go. Uh, I was a kid who was always sensitive to the typical advice adults gave. Um, and yet it also, it often ended up being useless. I got married at 19 and the only negative advice I was given was you're too young to get married. That didn't make sense at first because I was around plenty of successful long-term marriages that started from an early age. Um, the advice would have been more tangibly useful if it was you're not mature enough for marriage. 
not because I wasn't mature enough, but I hadn't developed an adult sense of self enough to be able to offer the best of myself to another person. I had to develop what my best self was and make that better in the middle of a situation where I already had to constantly apply it, which I was decent at, but it didn't matter because it wasn't enough, etc. Okay, so uh, I guess his point there is that people were giving him advice that wasn't uh, directly tangible enough. Just saying you're too young to do this or that doesn't really address why being young is the problem there. Uh, okay. I love the advice you give to young people. It's full of substance and disclosure. Uh, I had some thoughts to clarify where I think these people are coming from. All right. Here, okay. Here's, here's what jumped out at me. He's talking about what I said in the last episode about Tim Ferriss. I think it was the last episode, or maybe it was one of the tangentially speaking ex episodes where I was sort of feeling like uh, it was conflicted emotions about the Tim Ferriss four hour work week book. Anyway, he says the problem with Tim Ferriss's class of success splaining, <laughs> funny word, is a 2020 hindsight attribution of success to methods when really it's more the case that the Tim who wrote the book and manages a how-to empire is more a key to success than the methods he sets out in the four-hour work week. I'm more likely to believe the opportunity-devouring mindset of an upper-middle-class Princeton graduate is responsible for his success than getting someone in India to auto-reply to emails for him, which is fine, but to people looking to him as an example for how to pay their bills and spend more time with their kids, that model's not on the table. That's exactly what I was feeling when I read the book. It's like, dude, the reason... You're, you know, sitting on millions of dollars in your bank account and have, you know, done all these great things is not because you set up these auto respond, you know, your virtual assistants in India and all this bullshit that you're telling everybody they should do. The reason it worked for you is because you're you're endlessly ambitious, driven fucking maniac. That's why. So it's kind of like. It's like you see these, um, every time I watch the Olympics, I, I like to watch swimming, you know, because it's so beautiful, the butterfly stroke and all that. And I swam competitively in high school so I can relate to it a little bit. And, um, and you see these guys and you say, wow, like they have the most beautiful bodies, right? And people refer to them as swimmers' bodies. And there's this assumption that if you swam enough, you would get a swimmer's body. And it's true that if you swam a lot, you know, you wouldn't be fat. You'd, you'd lose weight because it burns up a lot of calories. Um, but that's about it. You wouldn't end up with a swimmer's body. Your legs wouldn't get longer. Your arms wouldn't get longer. You wouldn't, you know, your shoulders wouldn't get wider. Your chest wouldn't get wider. So you don't get a swimmer's body by swimming you become you can only become a championship swimmer if you are born with a swimmer's body so that's the conundrum in these how to books these you know the secret to success they're written by people 
largely who were born with the keys to success. And so they're trying to teach you how to do it the way they did it, but they're leaving out the most important element in the way they did it, which is that they were born in Tim Ferriss's case with the kind of brain that gets you into Princeton, the kind of drive that, you know, makes you do all your homework and need to prove something to someone so that you are the kind of person who can apply to Princeton in the first place with a realistic chance of getting in. Those are the elements, the most important central elements in his success. And the stuff that he's elucidating in these books is really very secondary. You know, it's like Donald Trump, the art of the deal, blah, blah, blah. I remember back in the 80s when I was living in, in New York, Donald Trump was already a laughingstock, a fucking buffoon. And I remember one of the guys I worked for who happened to be a millionaire who knew him personally and all that. You know, he said, you know, the thing about Donald Trump is he, he sort of exemplifies the old adage that the best way to make a fortune, to make a small fortune is to be law. Sorry, I fucked that up. The best way to make a small fortune is to be born with a large fortune. To inherit a large fortune. That's what Donald Trump, Donald Trump inherited millions of dollars. So, you know, the art of the deal, whatever, I don't, I haven't read it, but if there's not a chapter, like the first chapter, um, about how to be born into an extremely wealthy family, then it's bullshit. I mean, yeah, okay, there are ways to negotiate, there are better and worse ways to walk into a deal and, you know, get your used car or whatever. But the best way to become a millionaire is to be born into a family with lots of money. And that's just the way it is. So as this guy says in, in his email, you know, it's perfect. He says, uh, the problem with money and advice is when people are looking to successful people and trying to figure out what applies to themselves, just fuck it and go follow your passion isn't an answer. When you try to break it down into something actionable, it almost ends up being have money like I did. That's it. Have money. Have opportunity. Be white. You know, have a father who introduced you to, you know, his old friend from college who owns this company who gave you a job. If you look at these success stories, it's almost always a combination of drive, which, you know, as I said in the previous episode, for me, ambition should be a conditional condition. It should be a situational um, approach. It should be temporary. Ambition, for me, is another word for desperation, sickness, fear, insecurity. Um, because if you're not afraid and insecure... Um, then you're, you're hanging out, you're having fun, you're having long lunches with your friends and sitting in the sunshine. You're not, you know, sitting in a dark room writing code or, or, you know, plotting how your company's going to make another million dollars. Why do you need another million dollars? Ambition to me is, is like hunger that never goes away, no matter how much you eat. That's not healthy. That's that's not a sign of success. All right. So 
I think, uh, okay, what else does he say in this? Oh, he also, at the end, he says, I wonder if you recommend traveling by motorcycle to young men. You have more experience in this area, so I don't know if you feel differently and how much you ride these days, but it's a relatively cheap and easy way to get the fuck out of Dodge quickly. I often urge people to find free campsites near where they live. There's a national forest near me that goes criminally underused, a good hammock, some beer, a fire, and almost enough silence. It's an incomparable heat sink for anxiety. Well, that's certainly true. Uh, oh, and he signs it off. You're one Christian monogamist fan. <laughs> I'm sure there's more than one. Um, yeah, I, as far as motorcycles go, that also falls into this category of uh, hard to give advice because yeah, I rode a lot of motorcycles over the years in a lot of places, and I didn't kill myself. But that doesn't mean you won't. Uh, I had a lot of very, very close calls. Um, some that I look back on, and I don't know how the hell I didn't get smashed up. Um, yeah, I won't go into details. But yeah, I, I, I pushed... I pushed the limits of, of sense and luck. And, you know, it's like the hitchhiking. You want to hitchhike to Alaska. Okay, go ahead. I did not get raped and murdered, but that doesn't mean you won't. I don't know. I don't know. It's really hard to give advice because, you know, you look back on things and, and it's very easy to act like you had some great fucking master plan and I can teach you how to do what I did. But the fact is that I was just really fucking lucky. A lot of shit could have gone very, very wrong that didn't. And even the shit that did go wrong sort of worked out okay. You know, I mean, you've probably heard my story about going to prison in Alaska. And that could have been horrible. I could have been, you know, beat up and raped. And you know, my entire fucking life could have been destroyed. But... It didn't work out that way. Now, I know that's not because I've got some secret that I can impart to you. It's because I was fucking lucky. That's all it was. Um, there are definitely things I could have done wrong that would have invited more problems than I had. And yeah, maybe I said the right thing at the right time, or maybe... There was a look on my face that said to people, ah, don't fuck with that kid. He's all right. Or maybe it said, don't fuck with that kid because he'll fight back. Or I don't know what it said, but whatever it said, it seemed to have worked. Or maybe I was just lucky that the real badass motherfucker who would have beat the shit out of me got out a few days before I got in. Who knows? Who knows? But I do think that it's a mistake that we make to look backwards and see patterns and uh and wisdom when often all there was is a is a series of, of fortunate happenstance i remember reading an interview with paul newman in playboy years ago you can probably google it um it was in the 80s or 70s or something but anyway it was a really good interview because he, at one point he made exactly the point that I'm making here, which is, you know, he says, I look back on it and it sounds like I had some great master plan, 
But I was just fucking lucky. There were a lot of guys as good looking as me who were trying out for different parts, who were just as, you know, better actors than me. I'm not even a particularly great actor, whatever. I was just really fucking lucky. And now here you are, you know, asking me to explain to you how I did it as if I set out with an idea of what I was even trying to do. I didn't. It just fucking happened. So... I don't know. That's a weird thing to be saying in a series about uh, giving advice, I guess. But but it's the truth. I think there's just good luck and bad luck. And, you know, if you listen to Tangentially Speaking, you know that um, a guy I interviewed six weeks ago, really cool guy, uh, is dead. Fucking freaking me out, honestly. Because, you know, when we met... He had had this scare. He went to the dentist, some oral surgery, whatever. They did a blood test. It came up weird. They did some more tests. And suddenly this guy who thought he was perfectly healthy finds out he's got leukemia, flies to Bangkok, uh, does some chemo. uh, And they say, oh, my God, you're responding so well to this chemo. It's amazing. You're great. You're a model patient. His mom is gave him um, stem cell, they, so they harvested her stem cells. Then he goes in to get that done, and it's all routine. You're so great. Everything's wonderful. He's not having any adverse effects to the chemo. And then he's dead. Now, did he do something wrong? No. He didn't do anything wrong. You can't blame him. Although, interesting how we try to do that, you know? Bad shit happens to people, and we're like, ah, we'll see. That's because, you know, he he drank too much, or see, he didn't exercise. We always try to blame people, even in a subtle, you know, way, because we feel like somehow it protects us. Well, you know, I I don't do whatever it was that he did that made that happen to him. Bullshit. It's all just fucking luck. It's all just rolling dice. And there's no right way to roll dice or wrong way. Uh, So that's the thing about motorcycles. I don't really recommend motorcycles because they are very risky. And most of the people who have motorcycle accidents have them in the first three months of having a bike. So if you do get a bike, be insanely careful the first four, five, six months. Um, And then... You know, part of the thrill of having a motorcycle and riding a motorcycle is you're so close to death all the time and you feel it. You know, you're riding down the road and you could stick your foot out and hit the highway. And, you know, it's that close. There's no glass, no illusion of separation from it. That's the thrill of it. That's also the thrill people get from going to war and jumping out of airplanes and, you know, doing other crazy shit that people do. So, no, I do not recommend motorcycles to young men, especially young men, because you're already death-defying dumbasses by definition because you're testosterone-poisoned. But I had fun on them, (laughs) and I didn't die, as far as I know. Okay, what else do we got here? Uh, Okay, here's one. All right, my name is blah, blah, blah. I live in Spain. Like you, I've spent a lot of my life outside of the U.S. 
if you come through, you should give me a call, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so this is a guy inviting me to, to look him up when I'm in the same city he's in. Um, although I think we would have many things in common, I also know there is one aspect of my life that you would dislike, but perhaps it would lead to interesting conversations. All right, now this guy shot himself in the foot because, you know, okay, he's lived outside the U.S., he travels a lot, he's a cool guy. Yeah, maybe when I'm in town, I'll, I'll, whatever. If I, I mean, I won't remember, but whatever. If I happen to remember, I'll drop him an email and we can get a beer or whatever. I've done that with lots of people. But that last sentence, that last sentence, I know there's one aspect of my life that you would dislike, but perhaps it would lead to interesting conversation. Why would I reach out to this guy? Okay, you're telling me there's something about you that I will dislike. You know I will. You don't tell me what it is, so you're not leaving it up to me to decide whether or not that's interesting enough for me to risk it or if it's something I don't actually dislike and you're just being overly sensitive about it or whatever. You're just leaving it out there. And all that does is repel me. All that does is tell that's all negative as far as I'm concerned. So what are you? You're a pedophile? And what, what is it? What, what is the thing you know I'll dislike? You, you hate Jews and black people? You're homophobic? Um, you know, I'm trying to think of things that I know I dislike and that you would know I dislike. Whatever, whatever it is, none of, none of those things are, are making me want to get in touch with you, dude. So if there's something you know I would dislike, uh, I don't know why you would include it in, in an invitation to get together unless you're going to tell me what it is and let me decide whether it's disqualifying or not. So if you're listening to this, sorry, I will not be contacting you next time I'm in your town because there's something I know I'll dislike. And why would I... I don't even like scary movies. You know, why would I go to a movie that scares me? I don't want to be scared. Why would I want to have a beer with someone that I know I'm going to dislike? No, I don't think so. Life's too short. Okay, here's another one. Um, I know you probably get lots of emails, so I understand if you don't get back to me. I'm a big fan of your podcast. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay, here we go. Um, there's a lot more to history in human species than what I know. Prehistory, hunter and gatherers, and one example of your podcast switching on a light for me. I'd really like to know more. So I guess my question is, where do I start? What books or documentaries should I watch or what, anything to get to know um, about us as a species? Any help would be great. Okay, now here's another one of these very well-intentioned, you know, good, you're interested in this stuff and, and you, you've heard on the podcast that I know something about these things that you're interested in. But dude, I wrote a book, right? You, you know I wrote a book about the very things that we're talking about here, prehistory, early humans, hunter-gatherers. Read the fucking book. Don't write me an email asking me for advice on what to read. I wrote a book about this shit. Read the fucking book. It's full of advice about what to read. It's full of references to other books and films and movies and all sorts of shit. That's why I wrote the book, so I don't have to answer emails about this shit. Crazy. I mean, I assume this guy's young. I guess he's in, he's in college. But still, come on. You're reaching out to somebody 
for information because you know that they're, they contain that information. They have access to that information, right? Now, if they wrote a book, read their fucking book before you send them an email and ask for their personal time responding to you. I'm not your fucking professor. I'm not your tutor. I'm not getting paid anything. Although I've thought about setting up like an online course, but if I set up an online course, it probably wouldn't be about anthropology or sexuality or anything. I think what I would do if I ever get around to this is I would set up an online course on critical thinking, because I think this is the element of modern education that is really missing and is the most important element, how to see through the bullshit how to see the um, unarticulated premises and assumptions in a lot of what's going on, how to see where you're being manipulated by academics, by advertising, by science, by whatever. I think this is the most important thing. It's probably the only thing you really need. If you know how to think critically, everything else opens up to you. Okay. Um, here's another short one. I'm reading your books and I get it all. It all makes perfect sense, but we now live in the so-called modern society. I'm 28. I'm married. I love my wife. Obviously I'm also attracted to other women. How should I deal with this? Or can you talk about your relationship with Casilda and how you handle this? Thanks. Um, no, can't talk about my relationship with Casilda and how I handle this. One of the deals that we made when um, Sex at Dawn came out was that we would not, under any circumstances, talk about the specifics of our relationship publicly. And I think that was a really good move because... And I've explained this before, so if you've heard me talk about this before, you can skip this. Um, there are different reasons that that was a good idea. One is it's nobody's fucking business. Two is uh, if we said, yeah, we have an open relationship and it works great then Sex at Dawn would be seen as a book of advocacy. It already is in many ways, but uh, seen that way. But it would be much worse. And it would be dismissed as oh, a couple of swingers, you know, or, or orgy people or whatever it is that we, you know, that they thought we were. Wrote this book justifying the way they live. Um, and on the other hand, if we said, well, no, we, you know, we're monogamous, but we just believe that this is what the science shows about the natural, you know, history of human sexuality, then we'd be dismissed as hypocrites. Uh, so that's a lose-lose situation there. And then the other thing is, you know, we've been together 16 years. So as I've said elsewhere, that's not one relationship that lasted 16 years. That's a whole shitload of relationships that just happened to run sequentially over 16 years. Um, my point is that relationships change. So if five years ago I said, yeah, our relationship is like this. Well, today I would be saying something very different. People change. 
relationships change, conditions change, everything changes. So there is no one answer as to what kind of relationship someone has. And also, when you're describing a relationship, you're describing a dream. There, there's no way to describe it in a way that isn't leaving out the most important parts. And a relationship with another person, you're describing it from your perspective, and their perspective is something completely different. So there are a lot of reasons that I don't talk about my relationship with Casilda publicly. Um, as to how you should handle it, I don't know, dude. As we say in the book, we don't know how you should handle it. Uh, there's a very specific section in the book that we, where we address this. We say, what should you do with this information? We don't know. We don't know what to do with this information. Everyone has to decide for themselves what to do with this information. But that's the way all information is. Nobody should be telling you what to do with it. They just provide you the information and you do with it what you will. And what you do with it now is probably different from what you're going to do with it in the future. Hey, marijuana is not as bad for you as most pharmaceutical drugs. What are you going to do with that information? I don't know. It's up to you. But it's true. So my feeling as a, a writer is to that my responsibility is to provide you the reader with accurate information to the best of my ability, not to tell you what to do with it. I don't know your wife. I don't know you. I don't know your relationship. I don't know what you should fucking do with the information, dude. But the one thing I feel comfortable saying is that you should use the information to be less judgmental about your own feelings and your partner's feelings and other people's feelings. The best emails that I've received re related to the book are those from people who say, you know, now I understand why I feel this way. And I, I, I used to think I was sick. Or now I understand why my mom was the way she was. Or now I understand, you know, one God, there was one, I can't remember the specifics, but it was something about, um, yeah, it was, it was a woman in her late 60s, I think, and she said, this is the most important book I've ever read. I wish I could live my life over again. And then there was something about how her father had, her parents were divorced when she was a teenager and how she had never forgiven her father. But then after reading sex at dawn, she finally forgave him. And of course he was long since gone. Um, that's what you do with the information you forgive because human beings are highly sexual animals and we make mistakes and we have very deep hunger for connection with other people. And that often is expressed sexually or at least experienced sexually. And that's not a sign of sickness. It's a sign of humanity. So that's as far as we're willing to go in terms of what you should do with the information. You should cut yourself a break, cut your partner a break. If he or she is attracted to other people, 
All that means is that they're human. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you or them or your relationship. It just means they're human beings. So do that with the information. Use it to be a little kinder and a little more forgiving. All right. I think that's enough. This has been going on for 45 minutes or so. Uh, I'm going to play, or I have already played, the full version of the intro song for Tangentially Speaking, because I listened to that the other day, and um, it came up in the car, and man, it's a funky song. It's called Bright Side of the Sun, and it's by Basin and Range. Um, but I'm going to play the whole, or I guess I already played, yeah, I'll put it at the beginning. So I've already played the full version of that song. Check them out. Basin and Range Band.com, I think is their website. In, in any case, if you just Google Basin and Range, you will find them and their music. And what else was I was going to play? Um, Deep Steez. Yeah, I'll play that now here at the end. That's by John and Roy. I don't remember if John and Roy sent me this or someone who knows them or just digs them. I don't remember how this got to me. But the more I listen to this song, the more I like it. It's it's um, very much about what to do with life. You know, this guy's, I think he's 19, he says, I'm not even 20 yet. And he's already thinking, like, should I have a house with the the dog in the yard in the two-car garage? Or should I live another kind of life and whatever? It's very contemplative and interesting and I think very appropriate to this kind of thing. The album is called Sitting Back. The artist is John and Roy. And the song is called Deep Steez. I don't know what what that means, Steez, S-T-E-E-Z. But I really dig this tune. So I hope you enjoyed this episode number two of the Roma series, ranting out my ass, responding out my ass. And uh, I hope there was some elucidation for you in there somewhere. I will catch you soon. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being you. Thanks for telling your friends and supporting the podcast through Amazon.com by clicking through my webpage or fund what you love or Patreon, or sending me money by PayPal, or whatever. And if you don't have any fucking money, it doesn't matter. Just feed yourself, take care of yourself, and your friends, and your loved ones, and I'll be okay. Here we're standing right now, it's a Saturday afternoon. Standing right here, and it's for hours past noon, and I don't know what I'm doing, just sitting here, screwing around, writing down the words that come on my mouth now. It's been a long time indeed, the sky's great, clouds around my whole town, and I'm feeling kinda down. Cause the serious side of life is showing on like a sharp knife, it's right, smelling a little funky like a strong odor. The world seems a little colder when this view I encounter. And I can't think straight now, I'm older And this is why this view comes up Cause being older brings responsibility And actions bring consequences that could be harming me So I gotta shine on everybody what I do Even though I really shouldn't Cause worrying don't do anything good for you It just makes you miss out on good times And you don't wanna do that So you shouldn't follow any line That you think's been set for you Yes, it's true, when you're feeling kind of blue When you feel like there was nothing you can do Trapped in a cold place, blue smoke makes you choke On your own pit, hell yeah, it's very shitty But 
get one thing straight Life can be bad and life can be great It's all in how you take it If you apply the brakes when you should It's all good parts Now I start thinking things through Like what the hell am I gonna do In a year or two Got to get my life organized Find a path Following till I solve the math God damn, I need a job, I need a car I'm gonna need myself a house, baby, with a fancy bar inside Come home every day with pride, with a nice big yard and a dog outside But shit, what the hell am I talking about? I'm not even 20 years old, this is all I'm thinking about A sunny day, things looking up, what to say Got a little bit of funky rhythm flowing through my head today I see things, boot swings ain't gonna get me down here Gotta stop thinking too much cause I feel near to you And the soul of all being Life got a little spark today and this is all I'm seeing Yes for sure, this life can be rough But sometimes you don't appreciate it enough It's tough when people you love are dying around you But you feel helpless like there's nothing you can do here I'm telling you, always keep your head up and don't close your eyes Cause the world don't go away, it can only be disguised Two, three, four